morning. I guess good early afternoon at this point. Uh, good early afternoon. Uh, I'm excited that you're here at North Place. Uh, and I just want to join my heart with Pastor Brian's heart in thanking you. Uh, I was having a conversation with Stephanie Powell, who was our camp director this week at Royal Family. We were shooting a video, and I asked her the question, what are you taking away from this camp? Like, what's your, your, what's your take home? And she said, you know, we came and we loved and we served, and I just feel like that's the way that life should be. Like going home, I feel like I should be loving and serving people with the love of Christ and, and with all that I have to, to make a difference in other people's lives. And, and that may be the best way to describe what this week was. It was phenomenal. I don't like to oversell things. I, I like to be honest about them, but it was cool what happened in the lives of those kids, seeing them come in on one day, being completely closed off and skeptical, and then leaving on Thursday, being opened up and excited and, and having hope. And, and it came from loving and serving. And, and I express my gratitude to those of you who gave to help make it happen. Those of you that gave, not just financially, but your time and went, uh, that is a very, very, very spiritual thing. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for giving up your discretionary time with your family or on your vacation to just be a part of what happened in the lives of kids. It was a beautiful thing. So I, I want to extend my gratitude along with Pastor Brian. Uh, on a lighter note, um, I'm excited about this service. I'm always excited to preach, uh, but I'm exp- of the three services, this may be w- the one I'm most excited about because my sister visited uh, in, in the last service, and I told everybody in the other services, it's nice because she got to hear me preach, but also it means I couldn't lie. So um, <laughs> she's gone, so I can tell all types of lies in this service. <laughs> so whatever I want. <laughs> so I feel, I feel a lot more comfortable. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to lie to you on purpose. And so... Um, <laughs> I'm excited, but with that in mind, let's just jump into the Word and hear what God has for us. I'm going to be in Numbers chapter 21, uh, but let me tell you a story as you find your place. Back in the 17th century, there was an artist named Peter Paul Rubens, and he was painting a picture of what heaven looked like, and at that time was the Renaissance era. There was a, a love for the human form. There was a love for, the hu- for human pleasure, for what people were. There was a love for humanity. It was a very humanistic type thought process. And so their picture of heaven was this high society of party of men and women celebrating and having life. That Heaven was just the elevation, elevation of what their culture currently was. At the same time, there were these Jesuit priests and there were these reformers that saw the picture and said that this is a distraction to the church of Newburgh and that we need to get rid of this picture because this is not what heaven is like. God is not to be made in our image. We're supposed to be made in his. And we have, we have miscast heaven by painting it this way. There had to be a shift in perspective. Now, I don't think most of us in this room think of heaven as being this big party of high society, but I do think oftentimes God has to shift our perspective from seeing him in our image to us being seen in his image. And when we talk about prayer, when we talk about when we pray, prayer is the catalyst for that perspective change. And that's what I want to share with you tonight or this morning. If you've been here, you know, pastors have been preaching when we pray. And the first week that he prayed, uh, that he preached that, he talked about his new burden for prayer and how he wanted to extend that burden to the church and, and, and a sense of corporate prayer and a corporate commitment to God through prayer. And then we had a panel of our pastors talking about what God has done in our personal lives and our ministry lives through prayer. And then last week, pastor talked about the womb of prayer, the potential that prayer has to change the lives of believers and, and shape the desires of our hearts. And so this week, I just want to simply talk about a perspective change that happens when we pray. Uh, Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. 
Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at this bronze serpent and live. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to speak your word boldly and clearly. And Lord, I pray that we see a greater element of your character, that we walk out of here wherever we are on our spiritual journey and that we know you better, that, that we trust you more and that we depend on you more fully today. Lord, speak out of the volume of your book. Speak to your people. Lord, it's in your name that I pray. Amen and amen. Uh, let me give you a little pretext to the story because I want us to all be on the same page when we're having this conversation. And these Israelites, when you're seeing this story, they complain a lot. They are complainers. They complain all the time. Think about your kids, and I'm sure that's how sometimes God felt about the Israelites, that they complained about everything. So they were complaining, uh, and usually they complained because they lacked something, because they were facing a struggle that they didn't think they could overcome. They, they always complained, but this is a weird story in that they had just won an amazing battle. They were facing an enemy army, and they said, Lord, if you will devote these people to our hand, we promise that we will utterly destroy this city. And actually, the city was named Horma, which actually meant the destruction of a city. It meant total destruction. And so they had great success. And they were walking into a season of great success because if you follow the lives of the Israelites from here on out, you'll see that they mount victory after victory after victory. They're going through good things in this moment and the Lord is leading them towards their promise and they get frustrated with the process and they become impatient with God. And so their conversation with him is this. Number one, we are tired of being these nomads. You brought us out of Egypt where we were established and you've got us running around in this wilderness and we are tired of it. We're sick of it. We want you to establish us and we want you to give us a place that's our own, our status, our comfort, our strength. We want to be instead of nomadic people that are running from day to day, hoping that we make it. We want to get to the promise. We want to be there and we want the strength of knowing that our lives are secure and established. And then, not only are we mad at what you've done by bringing us out, we're mad at what you're doing because the food that you've given us is worthless. It's not what we deserve. We deserve better than this. You should give us better food and better strength. We don't want this manna that you're sending from heaven and this quail that you're sending by night. We deserve better food than what we've received. We need you to do more. We are not happy with this. Now, most of us in this room would not say that we complain in that way openly to God, but I think there is a struggle in all of us to wanting to be more established and more secure and having more of our own way and having more of the promise happen instead of the process, which often makes us impatient. I'm sure there's something on the inside of us that often says that, Lord, I deserve more. I have served you long. I have served you faithfully. I deserve more than what I've received. And they get angry and impatient with God and say, you're not doing enough for us. And God responds in this way. He sends fiery serpents to bite them and kill them. And in studying this text, it's my, it was my natural inclination to avoid it because we often avoid talking about the wrath of God. It's uncomfortable. We want God to be nice. We want him to be happy with us. We have a Tom and Jerry Christianity that eventually we will go sit on a cloud forever playing a harp and it'll be all good. But the truth is there is God has a wrath and he has anger and we must address it. So the, the text brings it up. So let's talk about it because I think there are two different types of the wrath of God that we need to talk about. 
There is the active and acute wrath of God, and there is the passive wrath of God. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I grew up, I would get in trouble. And when I would get in trouble, my mom would find some object to punish me with, whether that was a, sh- a shoe, whether that was a belt, or I think her favorite personal weapon was the wooden spoon. Uh, and, and if you weren't a wooden spoon kid, you don't know what that it's about. It was punishment on wheels. It was, I mean, I, she was like a knight of the round table. Like she would whip that wooden spoon out of her purse and she would just go to work no matter where we're at. And if she didn't have it and we were at the store, I'm pretty convinced she would just grab it off the aisle and beat, some, beat me with it and put it back. So somebody had a lot more of me on their wooden spoon than they ever wanted. Like that was the acute and active wrath of my mama at that moment. There was no wondering what I did because as I did it, I saw the wooden spoon come flying out of nowhere, I knew that I was going to be in trouble. But then there would be the passive wrath of my parents where I did something and they would be like, you need to go to your room and think about it. We need to figure out what we're going to do to you. And it's this weird tension of maybe I'm going to get away with this. They haven't said anything for a while. I'm going to play with my toys, but in the back of your mind, you're worried that my dad's going to jump out of the closet with an extension cord like a ninja and just go to work. And so you're freaking out because you're like, am I going to get in trouble for this? And the longer that it goes, the more safe that you think that you are. And they'll sucker punch you because they'll smile at you and laugh at you and watch TV with you. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, wooden spoon, like the passive wrath was not cool. In fact, the passive wrath scares me a lot more than the active wrath because the passive wrath lets me keep doing what I'm doing and lets me keep walking like I'm okay. And then I get to a point where I think that I have access to God and his favor and his power, but I'm not holy enough to please him. And so therefore I am stuck because I have this issue because I never dealt with it all this time and I thought that it was okay. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 1 when he says that he gave them over to their lustful desires and their debased mind and they they didn't have the access to God because he said, I'm just going to let you go and just do it. You think that's going to work? for you, big papa, go at it. But you need to know that there's something wrong in your life. The active wrath of God tells me right now in this moment, he's getting my attention and he loves me enough to tell me this is what's going on and you cannot access me if you don't deal with this. So there is a good thing about the active wrath of God and he has done it in the past and really the cross of Jesus is an example of the active wrath of God. Sin needed to be paid for and so he poured out that wrath on Jesus so that Jesus could take it for us. The active wrath of God was acute and it was very present and therefore we have grace and mercy because that happened. Yeah, that's, that's worth clapping about. And so... These men and women are experiencing the active wrath of God, and with all intelligence, they say, we have sinned against God, and we need him to fix this. So they run to Moses and ask him to pray, and God's response is this, go take a serpent and hang it on a pole. So Moses goes, and he, the, the text says, creates a bronze serpent, hangs it on the pole, and the people, when they are bitten, are supposed to look, and they will be healed. But I don't want to gloss over the process of making it because one of the things that you need to know is that in the Hebrew, the word is not bronze, it's copper. So it's more of a red color than it is a bronze color. In fact, archaeological findings say that in the area of the world where they assume that this was happening, there have been findings of, of a trench that's about five inches deep or wide. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's deep or wide, but that you could have withdrawn enough material to make a serpent-like figure and hang it. Copper-colored serpent uh, was hung in front of them. And that copper red, the red always represents the atonement of Jesus by his blood. 
So even then, in that story, in, that, in the midst of them messing up, there was a sign of Jesus' blood and his atonement for us. There was a sign that he was going to make some kind of sacrifice that if we look to that, it would give us redemption, it would give us wholeness, it would give us healing. It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do. And even the color of the serpent was specific enough to show that this is what I'm going to do in the future. It extended that scarlet thread of redemption that started with the killing of animals when Adam and Eve sinned all the way through the Bible to the blood that Jesus shed. And I know that we are a newer generation and we don't often talk about it, but the blood of Jesus never loses its power. So one, it has the element of that it shows the atonement, but it also shows the sacrifice of Jesus because God literally said the thing that's hurting you, the thing that's breaking you, the thing that's killing you, the image of that is going to be hung in front of you and you will look to that and find your redemption. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what they wrote in the New Testament when it says that he who knew no sin became sin, that I might find my righteousness in him, that Jesus taking on the images of the sin of the world, when I looked to him for my redemption, he made me whole. So just like this snake was the symbol of what they were going through, it also was the symbol that what was going to save you was going to be coming that image and you were going to be set free. So on a theological aspect, there is a foreshadowing in this snake, but let's be real, real practical about this. You may not know this about me, but I am definitely afraid of snakes. Some of you laugh because you're in the same boat with me. your fear may not be as big as mine. I'm not just afraid of like boa constrictors or, you know, the huge anacondas. Like I'm afraid of the little garden snakes that might be worms in the right light, but I'm just playing it safe to be sure. I'm not really sure what they are. So I just run the other direction. Uh, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, that looks like a snake. Let me check it out. I'm like, <laughs> just in case. In fact, I preached a sermon here and I was holding a snake as an illustration, a live snake. And we have hazers over there. And one of the hazers like, set off some haze like I thought it was the snake I freaked out and it turned and it looked at me and I thought it was going to steal my soul like it was (laughs) it was bad it was bad I'm afraid of snakes Uh, and so the fact that snakes exist bothered me but one of the things that I do know about snakes as much as I try to avoid them is that snakes don't fly and I know you laugh that would be the worst nightmare ever if snakes started flying (laughs) that'd be just a bad bad dream but they slither on the ground so in that day and age, if I were to go to bed at night, I don't have a nice high bed. I would lay on a mat on the floor or I would lay on a rock on the floor. And every time I'd go down to go to sleep, I would have to keep one eye open, afraid that there's going to be some snake that was going to slither up in the middle of the night and bite me and kill me. So I couldn't even properly rest because I would always have this anxiety and this tension that something was coming to get me while I was sleeping at night. Or when I walked around during the day, everywhere that I stepped, I would have to keep my eyes on the ground looking at what might be coming. Because if there was this thicket of bushes over here, there might be a snake that might come out of that. So I need to be mindful. And if I stand still too long next to this this patch of clothes that somebody left here, there might be a snake under it. So I have to be constantly moving and constantly paranoid and constantly watching, hoping that there's not something coming at me. So practically, I have an issue with the game plan of you're going to put a, a snake hung way high on a pole that I have to look up at because my problem is down here. But maybe the perspective shift that happens in prayer is simply this, that instead of looking at your problem, that you look to him. So maybe instead of looking at I'm going through a struggle in my marriage or I don't have enough money in my finances or I can't get my kid to live for Jesus or I've got sickness in my body because it's all down around you. And maybe instead of staying awake at night thinking, 
am I going to fix this out? How am I going to find that money or find the strategy or find the person that can answer the question to go to the right doctor or to hear the right sermon? Maybe the thing that we need to do is instead of looking at what's all around us is to put our eyes on him. Maybe the challenge of prayer is what that old song used to say, to turn our eyes on Jesus and look full on his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow fadely dim and the light and the glory of his grace. Maybe he is asking us to depend on him enough that we don't even mess with the problem, we just look at the answer. The other problem I have with the solution is this. The word of the Lord to Moses was, when they are bitten, they should look at the snake. Here's what I have a problem with that. There's some biting involved in this. I want to avoid pain and snakes. So I have an issue that snakes exist, much less exist anywhere near me. We can skip the scene in the DVD where I get bitten and just, just get rid of them all. Just, just send a fireball and get rid of all of them. That would work for me. But God often has this tendency where you have to walk through it and depend on him to see his strength. So when you look in the Bible, another great example is Peter is having a conversation with Jesus. It's the, it's the Last Supper. It's the night that he's betrayed. And Jesus is just laying out all this love and affection for them that, Father, I love them as you have loved me. And, and just this connection to God and that they were his sent ones. And then he turns to Peter and says, the enemy is coming for you, but I've prayed for you. Hold on. Don't, don't pray. Just stop him. That's like, hey, there's this mafia guy that's coming looking for you, and I gave him your address, but I'll be praying for you while you're going through this. No, don't pray for me. Take him out. Or the whole Red Sea thing. Look, the whole Red Sea thing makes me a little nervous because I do not swim well enough to be swimming in the sea. And so you're crushed on one side by this waterway over here and Pharaoh and his army. I done seen the Disney movie and I've seen the crazy swirly light thing that got rid of everybody. Just use that before we ever leave the house. I don't want to be put in the situation where I have to totally depend on you because on either side I can't do it myself. But maybe that's what he's trying to create is a dependence on Let's fast forward in the text because when you look in the book of John, the third chapter, Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and and he says, Jesus, you are a phenomenal teacher. We know that you are the one that's sent of God. And, And the hard thing about talking with Jesus sometimes is that you are talking about A, and he's not even talking about B. He's talking about Y, like you're not even anywhere near the same part of the alphabet. Because Jesus' response to him was, verily I say unto you that unless a man be born again, that he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That wasn't even what we was talking about. (laughs) At all. Like, I didn't even bring that up. And so Nicodemus says what he's thinking. He says, well, I am a full-grown man. How am I supposed to be born again? And then Jesus just drops this theological bomb bomb on him that I'm sure Nicodemus was like, What? Because he just goes into that those that are born of the spirit or that are, do the things of the spirit and those that are born of the flesh do the things of the flesh and that those that are of the spirit cannot be tamed and it goes whatever direction it wants to go and so are those that are born of the spirit. And Nicodemus is like, say what? And he was like, oh, you call yourself a teacher of Israel, but you don't even understand earthly things. How do you expect to understand heavenly things? But unless you see the son of man raised up like the bronze serpent and believe in him, you will not be saved. 
but let's dissect that statement a little bit because he's literally saying to him, you call yourself a, a teacher of Israel. You say that you know the law. You say that you understand me, that you have a, a covenant with me. You say that you're the most well-behaved people in all the world. You say that you have all of those things, but all of those things are little more than behavior modification and moral deism if you're not depending on me. So on one side of the spectrum, maybe the story is that there's a dependence needed on God because of a situation that you have. But maybe there's a dependence needed on God because we are seduced by our own self-reliance. And maybe oftentimes we, like Nicodemus, think that we know all the rules and know all the right things to say and can recite all the Bible verses. But the problem is that we haven't depended on him. We've depended on our own action and our own strength. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't work, Nicodemus, if I am not the object of your affection, if you're not looking at me. So, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, whether that is walking through the snake bites of life, or whether that is being in a place where things are all good according to your standards, the center object is still the same. It requires us to run to his cross. But I want to take a moment and camp out for those that may be on this side of the spectrum, dealing with brokenness and hurt and struggle and snake bites. There is a, a burden in my heart. I was talking to a friend on Friday, just a random phone conversation, and he asked me the question, what, is, what do you feel like is going on in the body? What's happening in the church? And I was like, I just feel like people are overwhelmed. Whether that's they're struggling in their marriage, whether that is they're struggling with their finances, whether that's they're sick in their body, um, whether that is they want God to reveal his destiny for them and they've been trying and striving and fighting and, and reaching for it and it's not coming quickly. I just feel like people want to give up. And then I happened to be at Discover North Place last night and at the end they were praying for me. And, and, I, and I want to, I guess, small commercial here. If you are new to North Place and you want to know the heart of the staff and the heart of the church, next semester they're going to do Discover North Place again. I beg you to be in that. I beg you to invest your time in that because you will understand and love your church better because you took the time to get behind the scenes. Commercial over. But they were praying for me. And Sheila Grogan walked up to me and she said, I just have a word for, for you. That tomorrow you're going to be speaking to some people that are like the children of Israel with their backs against the wall and they do not have any answer. And that they're going to need to hear to trust God that he can open the Red Sea to their deliverance. They will walk across dry land to deliverance, to healing, to hope, to strength. So speak the word boldly and clearly. And she had me from the children of Israel. I about fell out and started crying because I just knew she was on point. But there's this burden in my heart that there are people under the sound of my voice that are carrying brokenness, that are carrying hurt, that are being riddled with snake bites. But the perspective change that happens in prayer is it's not that you won't be bitten, but it's when it does happen that you can look to him. The perspective change that happens in prayer is that we are totally dependent on him. The burden of my heart is I don't want to just talk about it. I want to provide the opportunity for it to happen. So here in a few moments when as we close our service, the prayer team is going to come. And they're going to begin to pray. But maybe we are a little bit more like Peter, Paul, Reuben than we would like to admit. Because I think oftentimes we, pray, we paint the picture of prayer 
as this elitist activity of people who have a special relationship with God, and it's not meant for everybody. But there's a reason why this series is called When We Pray. Because when we pray, we depend on God. Do you, my problem with this text was, part of it was that these people knew that they were hurting and knew that they were broken, and they ran to Moses and said, hey, Moses, you go pray for us. And God's response was, let every man and woman that gets bit look to me themselves. So here in a moment, we are going to change the perspective of the picture. When these men and women of the prayer team come up here to pray, they are not praying for you, they are praying with you. It's what the Apostle Paul said in the church to the church of Colossians, labor with me in prayer. One, it, I like the wording there because it's not reside, be comfortable, rest, or it's easy. It's let's work through prayer. But the other part of it is it's an invitation for you and for me to be people that can approach the throne of God boldly. And he hears us. So here a moment. We're going to pray. The, the prayer team will be up here. I want to urge you to not just come and stand and listen, but to engage in prayer yourself, to go after God yourself. If the prayer team will come, and if everybody will stand to their feet with me. I don't know every situation that's in the room. I don't. But of the few that I do know, I know that there are people under the sound of my voice that need this moment to depend on God. There are people under the sound of my voice that need to know that though they have been bitten, they can look to him. And we would be remiss in this moment if we didn't provide an opportunity to not just talk about it, but to be about prayer. There are also people under the sound of my voice that are on the other, other side of the, of the spectrum. Where while they are professing the name of Jesus, it has been their activity and their ability and their, their strength. And they have yet to rely on him. And today is a reminder that this only works with him. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray. Uh, and those that are under the sound of my voice that you're not in either one of those categories, feel free to be released. Feel free to leave. But I'm just going to ask that you would be conscious and aware of those that are coming, trying to come this way, that you'd be courteous enough to let them and allow them to move out of where they're standing to up here where they can pray um, before you dismiss yourselves. And, and so I'm going to pray. And if God is calling you, whether, that, what, whether because of the circumstances that you're going through or he's tugging at your heart saying you need to drop the seduction of self-reliance and rely on me again. After I finish praying, will you respond? And those of you that need to be dismissed, we love you and we'll, and we'll see you next week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that oftentimes when I'm knuckleheaded and think that I can do it on my own, that you are so gracious enough to show me your power, your strength, and your mercy. But Lord, I stand today as a Moses, knowing the pain of the people, knowing that maybe the best word to describe where they're at is just feeling overwhelmed. Heart for them today is simply this, 
that in the midst of their brokenness, that they would, instead of looking at the circumstances, that they would look to you. So, Lord, I pray that in this moment that if they would do all that they can by looking to you, it would feel you. Lord, I believe that you've extended your hand their direction. Give them the strength to grab onto it. For those that are under the sound of my voice that need to turn their hearts to you again, not because they're in abject sin. Nicodemus was the most well-behaved, one of the most well-behaved people in all of Israel, but it's more than just modifying our behavior. It's trusting you with our lives. It's running to your cross when we get it wrong, and it's running to your cross when we get it right. Help us know that today. Lord, bless your people and keep them. Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance towards them, and Lord, give them peace. Lord, let them walk in the sight of you, knowing that you and their dependence on you is the greatest good that they could possibly have. This morning, Lord, I bless your name. Thank you for what you're doing in hearts. Amen. If you need to respond in prayer, feel free.